This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, and I'm so excited to welcome and introduce our guest, Vincent W. Lloyd. Lloyd is professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. His previous publications have covered religion and abolition, black natural law, race, and political theology. A leading young scholar of black thought, today we're going to talk with him about his new publication from Yale University Press, Black Dignity, The Struggle Against Domination. In this book, Lloyd describes the philosophy underlying the Black Lives Matter movement and positions dignity as an action rather than an essential quality. I'm so excited to talk further with you about your new work. So welcome, Vincent. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking as well. Great. Um, well, let's start with you know the book's catchphrase or the description, um, which is, Black dignity is the paradigm of all dignity and Black philosophy is the starting point of all philosophy. Can you talk with us a little bit about how you arrived at these truths, the moment maybe, and what power do these statements hold for activists that challenge domination? Sure. One of the things that I noticed uh, that was so striking to me about the Movement for Black Lives platform, a document that was gathered when uh, a bunch of different uh, Black Lives Matter local groups got together to discern what values they had in common was that the the first sentence of that platform was an affirmation of the dignity of Black folks. And I I wondered what that meant. (laughs) Dignity uh, struck me as a a language that you hear from the United Nations, that you hear from religious communities, uh, that sometimes you hear around human rights discourse. Why was it that dignity was at the center of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement platform. So I started looking through the history of Black political thought and Black social movements and noticing that over and over again, there are affirmations of dignity that come out of those uh, Black social movement spaces, out of those uh, Black intellectual spaces. Uh, And uh, I wondered, you know, is this the same sort of dignity that we hear in the United Nations? Is this the same sort of dignity that we hear in Catholic social thought or in uh, human rights discourse? Uh, And uh, the more I uh, reflected on the the way that dignity was being used in those Black political spaces, the more it seemed different. Uh, It wasn't uh, the sort of dignity that marks a kind of aristocracy or nobility. It wasn't the dignity of a king or a judge or a bishop. Uh, It also didn't seem like uh, it was exactly the sort of dignity that's just a property of every human, something that's universally held uh, and has to be protected in everyone. It struck me that uh, the sense of dignity that that was coming out in those Black political spaces was uh, dignity uh, that is uh, manifest in struggle, dignity that uh, we all have the capacity to exercise because we all struggle in various ways. Um, but uh, also a sense of dignity that, uh, you know, those in positions of privilege uh, who struggle less uh, manifest less. There's those who are uh, subject to domination uh, are uh, exercising this um, uh, dignity more because they're struggling more. Uh, 
so that, that uh, in some sense, this uh, black dignity is universal. Uh, in another sense, right, uh, there is a kind of nobility that goes along with this struggle. And uh, uh, this sense of black dignity is one that is specifically black, right? That is found most, uh, most clearly uh, and most acutely uh, in uh, black political and social movement uh, spaces. So that's what got me um, sort of uh, excited to write about this particular concept of dignity. And then it, I started thinking, you know, maybe this isn't just another type of dignity. Maybe this is the three-dimensional version of dignity. Maybe when we talk about dignity as status or dignity as a legal category, that's sort of like a two-dimensional version of this three-dimensional concept of, of Black dignity, uh, dignity as, as performance, as struggle. Um, if you sort of flatten that out, you just take one slice of dignity as performance and struggle, it looks like a uh, sort of status that someone might have or uh, a king might have or that might be attributed to everyone. But uh, if you see all of its sides, right, if you see it in motion, uh, it, it looks like black dignity. So that's why I want to say that black uh, dignity is the paradigm of, of all dignity. And similarly with um, the, the bold or stronger claim that uh, black philosophy is the starting point of all, uh, philosophy um, uh, that uh, you know what what we notice with dignity that um, if we look at this uh, context of domination, uh, if we look at uh, context of struggle, we notice this three dimensional uh, aspect of a two dimensional concept. Uh, I wanted to ask, what if that's the case for all of these uh, core? concepts that animate our moral life? What if that's the case for love? What if that's the case for uh, anger or rage? What if that's the case for family? That uh, if we look in this three-dimensional way, if we attend to contexts of domination and particularly to uh, Black uh, and Black American contexts, then we'll notice this three-dimensional sense of a concept uh, that uh, we previously were only seeing two dimensions of. Uh, so that's why I, I, I claim that Black uh, philosophy is the starting point of all philosophy. Great. Thank you. In addition to different manifestos um, across the Black Lives Matter movement, I remember, especially during the movement, that many college campuses also, the uprising had manifestos coming from college students on their campuses. And so my next question is really focused on that and I'm wondering, you know, in light of recent discussions of affirmative action, how do you envision not only teaching, but also experiencing Black dignity on college campuses? Thanks. Yeah, we're, we're at a really exciting moment, uh, and we have been for the last uh, five uh, or 10 years here, where the origins of Black studies departments are coming back. Right? The, the origins of Black studies on college campuses uh, are in student struggle uh, from the late 60s and early 70s, a student struggle uh, aligned with uh, global movements against colonization aligned with um, uh, uh, Vietnam War, uh, you know, uh, movements against the Vietnam War, uh, struggle uh, that thinks globally but also locally about, you know, how Black uh, students and Black communities are excluded from the college curriculum or excluded from the uh, life of uh, academic institutions. That was uh, what uh, gave rise to Black Studies departments, and that's uh, where we are again, right? Where uh, Black students on campuses are noticing the connections between 
the exclusions and uh, forms of domination that they face in the classroom and on campus, and the systems of uh, domination, racial and economic uh, and gender and sexuality uh, forms of domination uh, at, at a global level and at a national level, uh, and demanding uh, transformation. That's exciting that, that there's an attention to, to, to those connections. We're also at a moment where I think young people are grasping for resources and for productive forms of intellectual engagement to pursue goals of Black justice. Uh, and uh, one of the things I, I hope this uh, book, uh, Black Dignity, can, can do is model uh, so forms of intellectual engagement that, that are uh, invested in struggle, but are also um, uh, uh, grappling with ideas uh, and not just invoking names of great theorists as sort of totems, uh, as it were. With the recent affirmative action debate that's resurfaced in the country, I, you know, one of the things I, I've found uh, perfectly fascinating about that in, in my own teaching is that um, even the, the students who seem the most committed to racial justice in the classroom voice some ambivalence around affirmative action. I think that the right has so captured the discourse around affirmative action that students struggle to articulate uh, how uh, affirmative action could be part of a larger package of transformations of, of college communities in the, in the direction of justice. There are deep and real concerns there about uh, you know, how affirmative action affects its beneficiaries and the sort of psychology uh, there, but there's also a, a sort of a short-sightedness, right? That uh, that conversa uh, conversation about affirmative action was so much a part of racial justice movements of three or four decades ago, uh, before that policy discussion got hijacked by by the right. It's unfortunate that students these days don't necessarily have the the time or memory to uh, access, you know, that that earlier moment where affirmative action was part of a, a broader racial justice platform. Uh, and so one of the things that uh, this book is, is trying to do is bring us back to different historical moments, bring us back to moments in the 70s, moments in the 80s, bring us back to moments in the 1930s and 40s, where different forms of Black struggle were uh, at the center of the American imagination uh, and the global imagination around uh, questions of racial justice um, and model what it looks like to uh, take those journeys into history, uh, into different corners of intellectual life that can inspire us. Uh, in the present and can uh, get us out of our somewhat um, provincial, both geographically and temporally, ways of ways of thinking about the issues of the day. That's great. Thank you. I, in uh, many conversations and um, introductions from uh, many books at the press, a lot of um, our authors say that their work springs forth from discussions of you know their specific topics in their classrooms if they're professors. And I'm wondering if if you found that to be true for Black Dignity? And then on the flip side of that, has the publication of this book changed how you think you'll teach Black Dignity in your courses in the future? Thanks, yeah. And it's also the case for me that uh, much of my uh, writing and, and, and the research questions that fascinate me uh, grow out of conversations in, in the classroom. And in, in this case in particular, uh, I started directing the Black Studies program here at Villanova uh, a couple of years before I started working on the book, and I uh, was tasked with developing a core course that all of our Black Studies uh, majors and minors would have to take. 
Uh, and that was an invitation uh, to me to, uh, or I took that as an invitation uh, to think about both uh, what is the canon of Black studies? You know, what are the key texts that we want to introduce students to? But uh, even more importantly, what are the, the questions and ideas that can unite uh, a field that sometimes feels as if it's just a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a little bit of history, a little bit of literature, a little bit of anthropology, a little bit of uh, philosophy, a little bit of religion. Uh, and uh, it struck me that this uh, question of racial domination was one that uh, is at the center of uh, the field, at the center of Black studies, when Black studies is at its very best, uh, and that the most thoughtful uh, literature on uh, black black studies, whether it's scholarship, whether it's fiction, whether it's poetry, uh, you know, all of these I, I uh, have been using in the the class. You know, they're all uh, grappling with with questions of racial domination. That question of racial domination is one that might seem like a, a kind of special problem, but in another sense, is a universal problem. Right? That we all, in different ways, in our lives. Uh, regardless of our race, uh, regardless of where we live in the world, uh, encounter domination, uh, encounter those with arbitrary power uh, over us, uh, and you know we react to it. We we we, we uh, are angry about it. We try and transform it. We run away from it. Right? Uh, this is a part of the human condition. You know, it occurred to me uh, as I was formulating this this class and and teaching it uh, over the years now that. In the case of Black studies and the uh, Black Atlantic experience, uh, that is the, the experience of the Middle Passage as center of the uh, Black experience today, we get the uh, domination in laboratory conditions, right? We, we get the, the clearest case of one with arbitrary authority over another, master and slave, literally. So if we in the classroom uh, can bring all of the resources that, that we can to bear on this question of domination uh, in the case of slavery and its afterlives into the present, we can offer something to the rest of the university, right? We can offer ways to, to think about this deep question of our humanity uh, that everyone is asking in different ways, but that we in Black Studies are able to ask with particular clarity, uh, maybe unique clarity, so that's how I started organizing the class, and then um, I started uh, bringing those questions and those sorts of resources into into my own writing uh, that eventually resulted in this book. Thanks so much for sh for sharing um, the process of, of creating that course. I'm wondering if we can shift to um, some of your conversation um, about hope in in Black dignity, and in. Your written Q&A with uh, Yale University Press, which is available on our blog, um, you write that dignity has deep religious resonance. Do you think there's space for Christian theological reflections on hope, which I know you kind of grappled with and criticized in, in the book, um, specifically as they are now in discussions of Black dignity? Thanks. And uh, I am a scholar with a foot in the religious studies and theology mm -hmm. world and a foot in the philosophy uh, and uh, philosophy world and a foot, uh, I guess, a third foot in the, the Black Studies uh, world. And I have the opportunity to, to think with uh, students uh, in wearing my religious studies hat uh, about the way that religious communities can respond to questions of racial injustice and, and also can uh, cultivate uh, the, the virtues that can, can lead to survival and flourishing uh, in contexts of 
uh, injustice and, and domination. In the context of black politics, I think one of the key insights uh, of the racial justice movements of recent years uh, has been to be suspicious of hope, right? To, to think uh, that the narrative of the civil rights movement, uh, which is often represented as being centered on hope, right, uh, is one that gets some things wrong, that confused optimism and hope, that thought things would get better, that there's a path from here to a world without racism. Uh, and uh, in fact, there may be no such path that we can see, that we can see as an important qualifier right, that, uh, that, that sometimes is left out of overly pessimistic discussions of uh, racial justice. So uh, what I hear in racial justice movements uh, these days is a sense that racial domination is deeply ingrained uh, in not only our world, but in ourselves, in our way of seeing the world, whatever corner of the world we're at, whatever sort of person we are. Uh, and because of the depth of racial domination, it's impossible to imagine a path from here to uh, a world without uh, racial domination, a, a road of racial uh, equality. If we are to, to continue to struggle, if we are continue to, to pursue racial justice, that, that means we have to be motivated by something that is not optimism. Right? If, if there's no way to chart a path from here to where we want to go, we have to appeal to something else right, beyond the world uh, to, to motivate us. Uh, and that's where I think the, the uh, theological vocabulary or religious vocabularies can be particularly helpful, virtues of faith uh, and hope when it's distinguished from optimism, hope when it's a kind of otherworldly uh, hope, hope when it's not just a path from here to where we want to go, but hope from uh, when it's bringing us from where we are to a world that we can't even imagine, right? but that we feel called to move toward. Uh, that's the sort of hope that seems essential uh, to uh, articulate in racial justice movements. And I, I think the language of black futures uh, is starting to, to grapple with um, and, and sort of grasp at that, that kind of hope. Yeah, that, that is a great transition to my next question, which is on your chapter in your book on black futures. And, um, you know, your book, your book is um, arranged in different chapters, you know, from black rage, black love, black family, black futures. And I was particularly struck by your discussion of um, the work of Samuel R. Delaney because I'm a big fan. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and, you, and you write about, in addition to his work, um, you write about climate change and Afro-pessimism, and then you write about the science fiction of Samuel R. Delaney. And I'm wondering what you want readers to take away from your discussion of black futures, but also, you know, what we can learn from your rich definition of futures. Thanks. Yeah. And one of the things I, I really uh, tried to do in this book was to bring in material for reflection uh, from various genres, ranging from poetry uh, to science fiction, to memoir, to fiction, to philosophy, uh, both Black philosophy uh, in forms of Black thought, but also European philosophical tradition, and, and see these all as resources that uh, we ought to be grappling with as we're uh, formulating our moral vision in light of racial domination. In this Black Futures uh, chapter in particular, uh, I'm grappling with this uh, problem that if we are to take racial injustice 
with the seriousness it deserves, that is, if we are to believe that the experience of slavery uh, infected uh, the world, infected individuals with pathological habits and feelings, distorted forms of imagination, uh, forms of uh, religiosity, forms of um, reasoning, and that continues into the present, those distortions um, continue into the present, then you know, it's a real challenge to figure out how to imagine a, a better future. So we have to look in unexpected places to do that work of imagining. We have to look to genres that are more like poetry than they are like prose. We can't expect to come up with policy solutions or maps or plans that will get us from here to where we want to go. But uh, we can turn to song. We can turn to uh, science fiction. We, we can turn to forms of imagining, maybe even prayer, you know, uh, ways of seeing the world as radically otherwise from, from the world of prose in which we live in our ordinary lives. And even though that doesn't give us uh, clear guidelines about where to go uh, next, what to do tomorrow, those uh, resources, those diverse sorts of resources, those diverse genres, uh, can each orient us toward a world that's otherwise than our present world, uh, toward a world without domination. That's great. Thank you. And I was also, you know, struck um, in your discussions of, of climate change activism. Um, I find that many climate change activists ha- either are moving towards hope as a discussion of of specifically black futures. I'm, I'm thinking of like black climate activists or in terms of like total extinction and destruction. And I'm wondering if you think there's a middle ground in that and what Black Dignity, um, your book, or um, in general, Black Dignity can can speak to the future of, of our environment. Yes, and I think sometimes when we paint apocalyptic pictures, uh, they are uh, in poetry rather than prose, right? They're, they're, they're not necessarily meant uh, to refer to a state of the world that we see ourselves inhabiting, even as you know, they're, they're putting pressure on us to think differently about our world now in light of this potential future in the same way that you know, discourses of nuclear uh, annihilation, uh, nuclear weapons uh, in decades past uh, were meant to conjure a world where human life was uh, barely possible, where the world was barely inhabitable to get us to act differently and think differently uh, in, in the present. So uh, I think it's important to uh, appreciate that sort of genre of conjuring apocalyptic uh, futures. One of the the things that I try to think about in the the context of dignity as performance, as struggle, uh, is how we can keep our focus on the practices and performances that are happening now, seeing uh, dignity, uh, these practices of struggle as life-giving in the present, that uh, struggling isn't just something that we do in order to achieve something tomorrow or in a month or in a year, but it's something that can be a form of flourishing as we struggle. Right? The, the performance of struggle uh, is a performance of dignity, which is part of uh, a human flourishing or a sort of participation in, in, a, in a broader sort of flourishing. Uh, so in, in this case of uh, climate activism that you're, you're calling our attention to, the sorts of struggle that climate activists are uh, 
so creatively uh, engaging in uh, today, I think ought not to be seen as purely uh, instrumental, right? Uh, purely um, uh, sort of uh, techniques uh, in order to get us to make certain changes in policy, but are themselves realizations of of dignity that uh, can bring together communities, can lead to forms of flourishing uh, in the process of struggle uh, rather than at some end point in the future. Thank you so much for your response to my question. You know, my last my last question is, is there anything else that, you know, you'd like our listeners to know about your new book, Black Dignity? Thanks. Yeah. One of the things that I think is a bit risky in the book is that I do think it's important to show that we are called to not only participate in traditions of struggle, but also discern what those traditions are. And that work of discernment is difficult. Right? It's, it's not obvious what uh, it means to be part of a tradition of struggle. Uh, and it's not obvious who uh, we should look to uh, or to whom we should look for inspiration. Uh, it's not, you know, even when we find someone like Bell Hooks or Audre Lorde or James Baldwin, you know, these figures who can be hugely inspirational. I think it's uh, important to remember that they get things wrong too. Uh, they don't always agree with each other. We still have to uh, grapple with their ideas, see where they fit, see where they don't fit, experiment uh, with trying out the ideas that are close to uh, traditions of struggle and see uh, where they work, uh, where uh, that uh, tradition reaches its fullness, uh, and where we might have to discard some some thinkers, some ideas. And that, that's one of the things that I, I try and model in the book. That's why I say it's a bit risky. I, you know, I disagree with bell hooks on some points. I think she had some great ideas at, at certain moments. Later on uh, in her writing, some things went went wrong. Alice Walker uh, got some uh, great things right in Revolutionary Petunias, but then, you know, in The Color Purple, uh, the account of love, I think, is uh, less uh, helpful in, in thinking about Black political struggle uh, or uh, political struggle as, as, as such, political movements as such, uh, than in uh, her earlier writing, uh, so I, I hope the book is an invitation uh, and a model for that sort of discernment uh, that I think is so important and, and less and less common in our in our public conversations these days. Well, great. Thank you so much for um, taking time out of your teaching and writing schedule to come talk with me, you know, about your new title, Black Dignity. Thanks uh, for having me. Yes. Black Dignity is now available wherever books are sold. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Please visit us online at YaleBooks.com for more episodes of the podcast as well as information about all of our books.